According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're still in the prophet Jeremiah. We've moved on to chapter 21 for this morning. We had a week off last week with uh, Pastor Cliff and Round, and we had, gave a special message in, in conjunction with our uh, double portion grace blessings, and uh, still thankful for that, and uh, the blessings and delight that it was to have Cliff and Terry here and the saints from uh, Lost Pines Bible Church. I think it's a good tradition. It's the fourth time we've done that now in the last five years, and uh, we're very blessed. I think it's the best of all the times that uh, that we've had them come up and take part in that, so uh, rejoicing over that. But for today, we're back to Jeremiah again, Jeremiah 21. Has this book gotten too depressing yet? Should we stop and just give up now? It's going to get worse, all right? I'll just tell you. Um, but I believe we need it. I am highly convicted that our nation's in trouble and that the doctrine from Isaiah and from Jeremiah is exactly what we need, what this flock needs, what congregations all around the country need to uh, make sure that we are identified with the Word of God and we are fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, what, what are we going to do as believers if our nation collapses? And, um, and because we know eschatologically what, place, what replaces it is, is not going to be a pleasant thing. All right. So anyway, let's uh, open with a word of prayer, ask the Father to bless our time of study, and uh, proceed to a very unhappy message in Jeremiah chapter 21. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, uh, it is our blessing, it is our good pleasure to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for the canon of Scripture. I thank you for the living and abiding word of God. What a blessing for us, Father, that you have made your will known and you put it in writing. And I thank you, Father, in this current stu- uh, stewardship where we have a, not only a complete canon, but we have your Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us. That you, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit comes alive and leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. I thank you for a lampstand. I thank you for spiritual gifts. I thank you for the gift of pastor-teacher. I thank you for all things that you provided, Father. To whom much is given shall much be required. You've given us so much. Then, Father, humble us. Keep us diligent before your truth. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we have a uh, political chapter, uh, I think maybe more so than previous chapters. Uh, Chapter 21 and 22 begin a series of rebukes against the final kings of Judah. Chapter 21 begins a series of rebukes against Judah's final kings. And much like the book of Jeremiah at large, it is scrambled and out of order, and we're going to handle it as such. Uh, much of the book was written in, in different stages and was compiled in different stages. Uh, some of it was burned and had to be rewritten because uh, the king didn't like what he was reading. And, uh, and so the prophet uh, Jeremiah plus his scribe, Baruch, they had to rewrite portions of it and, uh, and so forth. And then when it finally came together in its canonical form, uh, it would, these uh, chapters were not placed sequentially. And as such, it's uh, slightly unique among all the prophets and, and slightly frustrating uh, for those that, uh, that like to study sequentially. If you, uh, if you love to study sequentially, then I recommend you don't study Jeremiah. All right. 
Um, or Proverbs for that matter. Proverbs is another book that defies a lot of sequential uh, approach. or can, It's uh, such a shotgun approach to the order or lack thereof that many of the Proverbs come out in, uh, in no discernible order um, in any event. So we have Proverbs Wednesday and we're going to stick with Jeremiah here this morning. Uh, let me give you just a, a quick outline for these final four kings starting with Zedekiah, all right? Zedekiah is the ultimate, meaning last, okay? Not the greatest, but the ultimate, meaning the last. Uh, Jehoiakim was the penultimate. Jehoiakim was the antipenultimate. And uh, if you even knew such a thing existed, Jehoahaz was the pre-antipenultimate king, all right? And I'm giving this to you at no extra charge, it's included in your price of admission this morning that you get to learn what it means to be last, second to last, third to last, fourth to last, okay? And uh, because we're too fancy to use phrases like the fourth to last king, we're going to say the pre-anti-penultimate king, uh, who was Jehoahaz. Typically, we don't, we don't get much past ultimate and penultimate in typical conversation, but just so you know, if you ever want to use anti-penultimate, it is valid in Scrabble. You can use it 15 letters long. It stretches from the left corner to the right corner <laughs> across all 15 spaces on a Scrabble board. But this is what we deal with, all right? So starting in chapter 21, we start with Zedekiah, and he is the last of the kings. He is the last one. He is the king when Jerusalem falls. He's the king when the, when the uh, temple is destroyed. He's the king when the city is plundered. He's the king who uh, has his eyes put out when he's carried away to Babylon. He is the, the last of the kings of, of the lines of David. However, technically, I guess if we want to be real careful about it, he is not the last in the line of Christ because Zedekiah is not in the line of Christ. All right, he's actually an uncle to Jehoiachin, who is the penultimate king in order, in sequence, but the ultimate king in terms of the line of Christ when the Davidic throne is vacated. All right, and so in many respects, the Davidic throne is vacated when Jehoiachin is removed, not when Zedekiah is removed, because Zedekiah himself is not in that lineage of the line of, uh, of David, and we'll talk about that. So uh, today we're going to be dealing with Zedekiah. Next week we'll be dealing with Zedekiah to start the first part of chapter 22. And then it moves on to Jehoahaz in Jeremiah 22, verses 10 through 12. And then after it addresses Jehoahaz, it it addresses Jehoiakim in uh, Jeremiah 22, verses 13 through 19. And then finally Jehoiachin in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 30. And I think I've shown this chart before. I love this chart. It's in the Bible Knowledge Commentary by uh, Walford and uh, Zook. One of the, it's a two-volume commentary. There's an Old Testament and New Testament volume, and I recommend it as, as a good evangelical dispensational basic old, uh, new, uh, Bible commentary. But this, uh, this chart is helpful because Josiah is the last of the good kings. All right. After him, none of the rest of them are any good at all. Okay, and so it's kind of easy to keep track after that. And in fact, if you're ever doing studies on the Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, when they split like that, you can recognize pretty quickly that in the Southern Kingdom, where you had the throne at Jerusalem and the Davidic descendants, uh, many of them were good kings, and a handful of them were bad kings. And they were bad kings because they imitated the Northern kings, right? Uh, in the North, uh, you have several, uh, and and they were all bad. All right, there was not a single good king among them uh, anywhere in uh, in the north. 
So Josiah is the last good king, uh, and uh, he started his uh, reign in his youth, much like Jeremiah started his prophetic ministry in his youth. And I think there's a lot of parallelisms between Jeremiah and Josiah in uh, in that, although uh, obviously Jeremiah outlived Josiah for some time. Josiah dies, um, goes out foolishly to attack Pharaoh and to try to intervene in the warfare between Egypt and Babylon, and uh, very foolishly then gets killed in 609 BC right before the Battle of, uh, of Carchemish. In fact, he was trying to keep Egypt from getting to the Battle of, of Carchemish, and that attempt uh, was, was foolhardy and not in the will of God uh, for uh, a lot of different reasons. Anyway, after he died, then you have Jehoahaz, his son, the oldest, and he only reigns for a very brief period of time, three months. He's called Shalom, one of his other names, and that's what he'll be addressed by as Shalom when we get next week, when we come back and, and tackle chapter 22, taken to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho, and then Jehoiakim took his place, his brother, and he had an 11-year reign. And, and actually, much of what we've been dealing with so far has happened during the reign of King Jehoiakim, all right, during that 11-year span. He reigns from 609 to 598. And uh, then he rebels, and Nebuchadnezzar shows up and gets rid of him and replaces him with Jehoiachin, his son, all right? But Jehoiachin's only going to reign for three months from December to March of 598 to 597 B.C., and then he goes off captive as well. And that's the time when Ezekiel and 10,000 of the, of the best uh, priests and artisans and, and uh, so forth, the professional class, are taken out of Jerusalem at that time. And what's left behind are, is, the, uh, is the underclass or the peasants that are left behind in, uh, in Jerusalem to face the starvation of the siege. And they were given Zedekiah to be their final king. And so Zedekiah being an uncle of, of uh, Jehoiachin is not in the line of Christ. The line of Christ descends from Josiah to Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin, all right? And then down through the exile and captivity until you get to Joseph of Nazareth and his wife Mary, uh, and then, of course, the birth of Jesus uh, to the virgin, um, where Joseph is the adopted father, but not the biological father of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, and that's going to be huge, so keep that in mind. I don't mind spending a little bit of time this morning reminding you of all these things because we're going to deal with a curse. Jeconiah gets cursed, and there's a promise that says his son will not sit on the throne. But then, of course, there's another promise that says his son has to sit on the throne because the son of David has to sit on the throne for all eternity. And we'll discuss what appears to be a contradiction as a beautiful promise that God solves himself with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, whereby the legal son is on the throne but not the biological son because, of course, Jesus is virgin born. All right, so this is what we're going to be looking at. And for today, we're going to spend our time in chapter 21. Zedekiah dispatched two officials to inquire of the Lord concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll read about it here in these first couple of verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him, Pasher, the son of Melchijah. It's a different Pasher than we had in chapter 20. Um, same name, but different dad and different person. Uh, so there's the first official, is Pasher, the son of Melchijah, as well as Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, and that's a different Zephaniah from the book of Zephaniah, by the way, so don't confuse that. So these two officials are dispatched to inquire of the Lord, saying, please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. 
uh, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw from us. In other words, make our problems go away. And this is uh, what they're hoping for, and this is why they send to the prophet. Interestingly enough, of course, they have no interest in what Jeremiah has to say up till now, but now that they've got armies surrounding them and they've got trouble, well, okay, let's, let's get religious and <laughs> let's see if the prophet of Yahweh can help us out. You know, uh, you know he did back in the day, uh, back when the Assyrians had us surrounded, uh, we had a prophet around named Isaiah. And uh, King Hezekiah sent to Isaiah, and the problem was solved. The angel of the Lord flew over and all the Assyrians were killed in one night. And so now you can imagine that uh, Zedekiah is thinking, hey, we should, uh, we should do that process again. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get a do-over on this. Let's see if Jeremiah is as powerful a prophet as Isaiah was back in uh, Hezekiah's day. Well, good theory. First of all, inquiring of the Lord. If you're not familiar with this, I recommend this. This is useful. Um, pursue this as a study. You'll notice how, it's, how it uh, takes place throughout the Old Testament, how it uses prophets or priests or kings as their agents, and what the process is like in inquiring of the Lord. And then you might be puzzled as to why we don't have that today in the church age. See, because we have something better in the church age. And I want to be very clear on that as we see some of these principles here. Inquiring of the Lord is a great privilege, or was at that time, a great privilege for a Jewish king in humility before a prophet of Yahweh. And several scriptures, I just gave a sample here uh, from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel to 1 Kings to Isaiah. Just a sampling, there's much more than this throughout the Old Testament. All right, and I think it's useful for us to be familiar with, if you're not already, to see the nature of what it was like with Israel as a theocracy, how they operated as a covenant nation, whereby their king was not the pinnacle of sovereignty because he himself was answerable to the Lord. And the prophet is who the king would humble himself before to go to the prophet of the Lord, to inquire of the Lord, in cases, unlike, uh, well, David was a special case because he was also a prophet as well as a king. And David himself would inquire of the Lord without the agency of, of Samuel or Nathan and, and so forth. But just to, uh, let's see if this works today. There it is, all right. Did I give you enough time to write down those verses? All right. First Samuel 28, 6. Second Samuel 2, 1. First Kings 22, verses 5 through 8. Isaiah 37, and the whole chapter basically, verses 1 through 38, we won't have to necessarily read the whole chapter, but we'll read enough to remind you of what you should already know because we finished an Isaiah series not that long ago. But uh, recognize in these cases what is being described here, and it gives you a better sense for what King Zedekiah is hoping to accomplish uh, now that he's got Babylonians surrounding him. All right, so 1 Samuel 28, 6. Um, during the reign of King Saul, uh, the part of the divine discipline upon Saul was such that when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And we see some of the different mechanisms that were employed, all right? A direct dream, if he himself was vested in the prophetic office, and in earlier days, uh, the, the question was asked, is Saul also among the prophets? There were seasons when even a knucklehead like Saul would have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him and he would, he would make prophetic utterance. And so the question was then asked, is Saul also among the prophets? Um, until 
obviously later in his uh, political career when he was turning to darkness and uh, and God turned off, uh, you know, revoked his access, okay? And uh, you and I can relax. This never happens to us. We never go to, to God the Father in prayer and get a busy signal, right? We never uh, go straight to voicemail where we have to leave a voicemail that God never replies to. Uh, God listens to our prayers because we are in Christ. And our prayers in Christ, so long as we're in fellowship, okay? Now for carnal, that's a different issue. For carnal, well then, yeah, our sin puts that barrier between us and God. But so long as we are in fellowship, you and I as believer priests have instantaneous access to God the Father. All day, every day, no questions asked. But in those days, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. The Urim and Thummim were interesting as part of the high priest's uniform. And uh, these stones that were kept within his ephod, uh, almost like um, you, uh, the, he could reach into his suit and uh, he could pull out a, either a Urim or a Thummim. All right? And they would determine the will of God on that basis. Uh, as far as an A-B type decision, uh, what to do based on Urim and Thummim, like casting of lots in, uh, in that regard. Or by prophets. So Saul said to his servant, seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, <laughs> his servant said to him, we don't know of any. Why would we know where we could find a witch in this place, right? <laughs> because we're holy people and we don't allow witchcraft in our land. You would like for King Saul to have advisors that would be so fastidious about their faith. Instead, the advisors knew immediately where to go. They said, oh, let's go to that witch in Endor. All right. There was a woman there. And so Saul disguised himself, put on other clothes and went and uh, aspects there. And this is a marvelous story for lots of different reasons. But to show what Satan does in counterfeiting the will of God and what Satan does in his... Uh, different means uh, by which he grants certain demonic powers to certain human beings. All right, that stuff's real. If you've never seen it, it's real, okay? And it's, it's, it will raise the hair on the back of your neck, and you're going to make sure you're in fellowship when you encounter that. And uh, you're going to be praying pretty fervently when you encounter that, because if you come face-to-face with a demoniac, you're, it's on. And, and that's, that's part of what we, do, what we deal with when we, when we wear our armor. Anyway... I think a lot of times, though, it's more show than anything else. And the, this woman, when you read her reaction, I think she was accustomed to calling up demons and then masquerading as, as whatever. And then, but then she actually raises the real Samuel, and it scares, it scares her to death. <laughs> when the real Samuel comes up from Sheol and, and rebukes Saul, uh, I think this witch is, is quite surprised that uh, she had the results that she had there. A positive example comes in 2 Samuel with King David. 2 Samuel, and now David. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord. Now it's interesting, David is also himself a prophet. He is in the prophetic office. And he himself can inquire of the Lord and does many, many times. He inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. See, and the difference in Old Testament inquiring of the Lord versus our prayer life today is we don't hear voices when, or we shouldn't, okay? If you're hearing voices, come talk to me, okay, after class. Um, But see, here's the thing. We have the reality of which the shadows are pointing forward to. 
We have the substance that belongs to Christ. And we have the greatest certainty of all because of the complete canon of Scripture, the absolute certitude of the Word of God. We are not children uh, in, in a dispensational sense. We put away the childish things. In the early church, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and, the, and the, those early charismatic gifts, they were called childish things. They were to be put away with the complete canon of Scripture. But David is inquiring of the Lord here, and he gets his verbal answer, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And so this is the, the nature of divine guidance for a prophet in the Old Testament as he was inquiring of the Lord. So David went up from there. And uh, different aspects on that. By the way, you understand, David was king on a limited basis to Heb- at, at Hebron. He was king on a limited basis only over the tribe of Judah until such time as he was then received all 12 tribes and he became king over all of Israel. And if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's interesting to see in typology why the millennium is so limited and what's beyond that, all right? The millennium is only a thousand years, but what's beyond that in the new heavens and the new earth? And what's beyond that when Jesus reigns not only as the son of David on the throne of David, but to the ends of the earth as the son of man on the new heavens and the new earth, a much greater reign not only for a thousand years, but for a thousand generations in the, in the dispensation of the fullness of time. So anyway, the reference to Hebron there reminded me of that. During the divided kingdom, uh, they had their ups and downs, and sometimes it didn't go so well. During the divided kingdom, as we read here in uh, 1 Kings 22, it's a, it makes me laugh every time I read this. We have Jehoshaphat in the south, and he's partnering with the king of the north. Now that's a problem. Because even though the king of the north is Jewish, he's, he's pagan, he's following false gods, he's not worshiping Yahweh Elohim. And so they go up to the north and they decide, hey, we should inquire of the Lord first before we go into battle together. We've got this partnership here, we're going to go to war together. And so Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. And so the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. Well, what kind of prophets are those? <laughs> They're not Yahweh's prophets. Remember, in the north, they were very fond of those Baal prophets that Elijah had to do battle with. About 400 men and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go on up. The Lord will give it into the hands of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, um, <laughs> Excuse me. Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? <laughs> you know, Jehoshaphat was not impressed with those 400 prophets that uh, the king of Israel had. He says, Don't you have anybody that serves Yahweh? And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. (laughs) You know, there's one guy left in my whole kingdom and I can't stand him, okay? I hate him. Um, Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. And you, and you, you read a passage like this and you think, wow, what a picture for all time, right? For our culture today and, and you know, the, the, church, the pastors that are popular versus unpopular. And if they tell you what you want to hear, then, hey, I can support that. But if they tell you what you don't want to hear because they're speaking the truth and love, that gets hated very quickly in a lot of places. And so, anyway, it goes on and there's, there's a larger context for that. 
Finally then, as I mentioned, in Isaiah 37, we have the example when Hezekiah was king and when Isaiah was the prophet of his day and age. And what a contrast. What an absolute contrast. And in my prayers, my prayers are that we would have a president after the pattern of Hezekiah, not after the pattern of Zedekiah. And that he would surround himself with advisors that know the truth. That he would have advisors in his, in his you know, who's going to be the White House chief of staff? Is it going to be an Isaiah kind of guy or a Jeremiah kind of guy? Okay, Even if he knows the truth, it's still not going to help in the, in the case of Zedekiah with Jeremiah. All right? and it's not, we're not saying that Isaiah was a better prophet than Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah was a greater prophet than Isaiah. When it comes right down to it, when the, in Jesus' day, they thought he could have been Jeremiah. They didn't say he could have been Isaiah. They thought, hey, maybe you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In any event, um, I tremble for our nation and, and the kind of president we're going to end up with and the kind of advisors he's going to have surrounding him or her. All right? The kind of advisors she will have surrounding Madam President if that, in fact, happens. Okay? So when King Hezekiah heard it, what did he hear? He, well, there were armies around Jerusalem. There were Assyrian armies, and they were taunting them. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. I don't remember now. Did, uh, did, was Hezekiah doing that? No. When he dispatched those two officials to go to Jericho? No. There was no humility. In fact, the response was just the opposite. Was, you know, you go inquire of the Lord and make sure he says what we want him to say. So he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Now, that's another difference. When these two uh, agents of Zedekiah show up, are they covered in sackcloth? Have they humbled themselves before the Lord? Not at all. And so they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for their children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. And then uh, he cites the words of Rabshakeh and all the taunting that had taken place, slandering, blaspheming the, the power and the might of, of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Anyway, so Isaiah says, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid, because of the words that you have heard with the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. This is a positive message. This is what Zedekiah is hoping he's going to get from uh, Jeremiah. He's not going to get this from Jeremiah. Not even close. But I think that's what he was hoping for. That's what he was fishing for. He's just not going to get it. Um, these officials are not going to be happy with the Lord's answer. And we don't actually get the response. It's not recorded for us until we turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 38. But let's look at these verses here now and see in, in verses 3 and following. Um, Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands. (laughs) Not turning back the weapons of war that are in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, turning back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall, and I will gather them into the center of this city. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. Yahweh says, I myself am leading this battle. 
You guys are all scared of Nebuchadnezzar and you fail to realize I am the one leading this battle. Yahweh is against you. The Lord God of hosts is against you. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city. That's verse 6. Both man and beast, they will die of a great pestilence. Then afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, even those who survive in this city from the pestilence, the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes and into the hand of those who seek their lives, he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them, nor have pity, nor compassion. That's not a happy message. <laughs> and do you think um, Pasher, the son of Melchijah, and Zephaniah, the priest, son of Messiah, uh, do you think they were all excited to go back and tell Zedekiah that word for word? Not at all. Not for a minute are they going to go back and repeat any of that. All right. Uh, we can take a quick peek here. We'll, we'll be here in about 17 weeks. We get to chapter 38. Jeremiah 38. Um, and he, they hear the words of Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, and then they get mad, and then they're going to throw him down a well. And they're going to sentence him to death. So uh, thus says the Lord in verse 2, thus says the Lord in verse 3. And so the officials said to the king in verse 4, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. Never mind whether the words are true or not. He is discouraging our people. He has to die. By speaking such words to them, this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So King Zedekiah says, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. And so they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. In the cistern there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. Don't you hate it when that happens? And then we get introduced to Ebed Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch. You know, the Bible is kind of favorable towards Ethiopian eunuchs. And we're going to have some fun with that, I think, when we get to see him in chapter 38. All right, so this is what we deal with here. The word of the Lord speaks to Zedekiah in verses 3 through 7. The word of the Lord speaks to Zedekiah. And it is not a happy message, but it's true. And if Zedekiah was as humble as Hezekiah, he would have rejoiced and, and accepted the truth for what it was. But clearly we're dealing with uh, a different set of circumstances. And obviously Zedekiah is not a godly man like, like Hezekiah was. Um, the Lord's outstretched hand, mighty arm, anger, wrath, and indignation they are all at work inside Jerusalem long before Nebuchadnezzar's armies can break in. Long before the armies break in, God is at work. And there's principles here that I think we better pay attention to. There's principles, you know, we're watching current events, we're watching to see how things unfold, failing to recognize that as these things unfold, they are reflecting what's already a reality. Already the hand of God is, is at work. 
either for blessing or for cursing. The hand of God is already at work and it's been at work for a long, long time. And in many cases, you know, when, when we finally see visible effects, uh, such as uh, armies smashing in through uh, uh, pierced walls or, um, uh, you know, election day uh, celebrations, <laughs> um, by the time we finally see the visible effects that are manifest in the realm of humanity in the visible spectrum, um, the hand of God has already been at work for a very long period of time. And it's only now that we see the, the, the full wrath for what it is, or a blessing for what it is. And so as we look at it here, in fact, there's uh, patterns for this all throughout the Old Testament. There's patterns for this, principles that we see communicated in the New Testament, how God has absolute sovereign control over human history. We can rejoice over the fact, as Pastor uh, Theme says, that Jesus Christ controls history because all judgment's been given to the Son. There it is, all right? And so what we see unfold is not an accident. And God has not lost control of things. We wonder sometimes, (laughs) you know? We look at political seasons and we look at two candidates and say, how did we end up with these two? Okay, you know, can we have a do-over? Can we get two different ones? Uh, How do we have the two that we have? And uh, and that okay and comedian I, mean, I think it's probably great business for the stand up comedians maybe I don't know but from the different dumb and dumber references that I've heard and different things but the hand of God has already been at work God Himself is working God Himself is leading these armies and the walls not keeping Him out the walls are maybe keeping the the Babylonians out for a time they laid siege for more than a year. But uh, disease, the internal swords. See, what happens then is dissension among the troops, spats among the different troops, and quarrels among the different troops. And sword is turned against, you know, hand, brother against brother. And uh, the squabbles between the defenders that end up doing the job before the Babylonians came and break in and do the job. You know, in a civil war, everybody loses, right? Because it's both sides are killing one another. In Isaiah 63, we got a pattern here too. Um, there's a very long context for this here, and I, almost I walk through the Bible uh, illustration. And uh, do I want to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 63? This is eschatological. Um, Who is this that comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your garment red? Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. Remember this? We taught this in the Isaiah series. Okay? And the different hymns that are written, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah, he's trampling through the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished there was no one to uphold. Just as Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to accomplish the first advent work at Calvary, Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to accomplish the second advent work when he marches forth to conquer 
So my own arm brought salvation to me. My wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. We're getting there. We're getting there. Hold it. I'm headed for verse 9, right? For he has said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. And yet, what does it take to save them? Look what it takes. What does it take to humble Israel? What does it take so that Israel is humbled and looks upon the Messiah whom they pierced? Because until they call upon the Christ that they crucified, he cannot deliver them. It takes this kind of wrath. Sons who will not deal falsely, not when he's done with them. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. This is the point. So when when Nebuchadnezzar was outside Jerusalem... Who was against Jerusalem? Yahweh was. All right? It's going to be the same thing when Antichrist is surrendering, is uh, surrounding Jerusalem. Yahweh will be leading the armies of Antichrist. I think it's undeniable in, in this text, Isaiah 63, also Joel chapter 2. Read about locusts that are spreading and Yahweh goes before them in Joel chapter 2. And so we see it here. With an outstretched hand, with a mighty arm. These expressions are significant. They're significant historically when we consider what was done in the Old Testament, but they're significant eschatologically when we know what he's going to do in the tribulation of Israel. We know what he's going to do when he delivers the Jewish people. We want to be very clear on this. This prophecy has a short-term fulfillment in Jeremiah's day, but also foreshadows a tribulational fulfillment when Jerusalem falls to the armies of Antichrist. Jerusalem will fall to the armies of Antichrist. Ezekiel tells us this. Zechariah tells us this. Isaiah tells us this. It's, It's going to happen. But look at the language that's used in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 and 34. All right, I want to pop that up again, but I don't want to cover the slide. Write faster. All right, I grew up under John Eichmann, Ken Jensen, R.B. Theme. Some of these pastors, they were, they, they they didn't slow down for anybody. See, I'm a softy. Some of these old school guys, I'm sure Carnegie was the same way. They would just hit you and hit you, and your arm, your hand would be cramped trying to write all your notes. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 and 34. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. You know, if it could happen any other way, it would happen any other way. But it happens this way because this is what it takes. It's like the cross. If it could happen any other way, it would happen some other way. But it can't, so this is what it costs. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. It's not possible. 
not to accomplish the objective. And that's true for first advent, it's true for second advent. If there was any other way to bring Israel to repentance, you think the Lord wouldn't do that? But this is what he does, because this is what it takes. God knows every what if. He knows the what ifs that would have made Sodom and Gomorrah repent. He knows the what ifs that would make Jerusalem repent. And this is it. A mighty hand with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. That's powerful language right there. And it's parallel to what we're dealing with in Jeremiah chapter 21. He says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. This is like a global exodus. All right? Moses in the exodus, he brought the Jewish people out of one country, brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. The Lord's going to do that at, at Armageddon. He's going to bring, at Second Advent, he's going to bring the Jewish people, but not out of one country, out of every country, out of all, however many there are, 192 countries on the face of the earth today, or however many there will be then, all right? However many there will be then uh, that, that survive the tribulation, well, whatever is left of those nations then, every Jewish person on the planet is going to get regathered from the four corners of the earth. Think about it. And I think some of them are going to be very surprised that they don't, a lot of Jewish people don't know they're Jewish. <laughs> and a lot of people think they're Jewish, and you're going to find out, eh, not so much. Okay? Think about it. In the Middle Ages, they switched to a matrilineal reckoning instead of a patrilineal reckoning. And they said, if you've got a Jewish mom and a Gentile dad, you're Jewish. If you have a Jewish dad and a Gentile mom, you're not Jewish. But we can kind of make you Jewish if we make you a proselyte and we force you to come through. It got complicated when they switched to matrilineal descent instead of the patrilineal descent of Scripture. But God's not confused, trust me. We get confused as far as who's male and who's female. God's not confused. God gets, uh, we get confused as to uh, who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. God knows not only who's Jewish, but what tribe they're from and what clan they're from and what family they're a part of, what house they belong to. Because the nation, the tribe, the clan, the family, and the house will all be reinstated for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what happened with Moses, right? He brings them through the Red Sea and they immediately went up to milk and honey and had a, you know, lived happily ever after? No. What happened was the wilderness. And what happened, first of all, was judgment. They went down to Sinai and they received the law. And he enters into judgment and he places before them the terms in which they will enter the land. And in the process, they made a golden calf and rebelled and all kinds of other issues, right? And so they wandered for 40 years. It's going to happen again. He's going to regather them from the four corners of the earth, but he doesn't place them all in the land flowing with milk and honey, not right away. He gathers them from the four corners of the earth, and first of all, he takes them into the wilderness. And he says, we're going to start with judgment. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We're going to start with judgment. So he's true to his promises. The promises are he regathers all Israel. But another promise says no unbeliever is going to enter. He's going to be true to all of these promises. And so we read, 
I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. See, back then it was just Moses face to face and then he went and told the people. But here it's going to be face to face, Jesus with everybody. All the Jewish people that he regathers from the four corners of the earth. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I'll enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. I will make you pass under the rod. And if you've ever done a study on Jacob in the Old Testament with his striped rod and the speckled sheep and the black sheep and the white sheep and the colored sheep and all the back and forth between Jacob and Laban, you probably were very confused over something that made no sense to you at the time. All right, it made no sense to me at the time, except Laban kept trying to wheel and deal and cheat Jacob. And every time they changed the terms of it, the, uh, the sheep would mate and produce different colored babies. And Joseph won every time. <laughs> okay. And Joseph won every time. Was it the manipulation of how he stripped his, you know, striped his, his poles and how smart he was in animal husbandry to, no, it was God and his grace providing for Jacob, even when Laban was cheating him all those times. But all of that, too, was a pattern for this. Every Jewish person is being brought under the rod, and being brought under the rod is determining whether they are going to enter the kingdom or not. Okay, Because this is the rod of the covenant. This is bringing them under the bond of the covenant. And the one who shed the blood of the covenant, Jesus Christ on the cross, is the one who holds this rod in this judgment. And every Jewish person on the planet, what are there, 14 million Jews on the planet today, I think? All 14 million are going to be brought, or however many that survived the trip. Every living Jewish person on the planet is going to be brought to this wilderness judgment. And the believers will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. They will pass under the rod and they will march up the holy highway to Jerusalem. But what about the unbelievers? Well... It says, I will, pass, I will make you pass under the rod, I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So he makes good on his promise. Every Jewish person on the planet is regathered. But the unbelievers are not going to walk the holy highway into Jerusalem. The unbelievers will be executed purged, struck down right here with physical death and cast into hell to await the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Say, so well, that sounds kind of harsh. That's what the text says. And he is coming to conquer. He rules as a conqueror for the thousand years. It is a occupying government for those thousand years. It is a rod of iron. It is a sword that he rules with. So as for you, house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go right ahead, serve everyone as idols. (laughs) Let him who is unrighteous be unrighteous still, right? Go ahead, enjoy your idolatry while it lasts. Later, you will surely listen to me and my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. Anyway, this is the promise here in Ezekiel chapter 20. Well, 
That's the parallel language to what we're looking at in Jeremiah 21. With uh, outstretched hand, with mighty arm, with wrath poured out. This is the language of what Jesus said he didn't come to do in first advent. He said, I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world. But second advent is a whole different thing. On the basis of what he accomplished on the cross, he's now able to come and he comes to conquer and he comes to reign. We want to be clear on this. And I hope that we are. All right. Um, the next message, verses 8 through 10. The word of the Lord speaks to the population of Judah. There's a second address that follows here. Beyond the message is supposed to go back to tell Zedekiah. In verse 8, Jeremiah says, You shall also say to this people. You know, why do you have the kind of king you have? Because you got the population you have. Thus you shall say to this people. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. So choose you this day which you will walk. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live. And he will have his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. Now this is not the Jeremiah reference that people want to quote today. It is not the Jeremiah reference that goes on the knickknacks you buy at Lifeway that you put up on your refrigerator. The Lifeway knickknacks don't use this Jeremiah verse. They use a different Jeremiah verse that says, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your, and not for your adversity, but for your blessing, that you may have a future and you may have a hope. Why do they pick that one instead of this one? They're both from Jeremiah, and they're both completely out of context for your refrigerator. <laughs> okay? All right. It's like the prayer of Jabez. It's like every other fad that comes and goes. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's Israel. That's not United States of America. Okay? And if we do make application, at best it's secondary application, and we better have the doctrine to understand why we're making a secondary application. Because the United States of America is not God's people called by His name. And we have no eternal promises. We can be destroyed tomorrow in the will of God. So here it is. I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will burn it with fire. So where's the good news? Well, the good news is, surrender now and your life will be your booty. Okay? Your plunder, your pirate booty, right? Okay. Yeah, don't... Careful. We have English idioms that use booty in different ways. Okay? And where's Carmen? Carmen struggled with this a while back. It was not a not native to her birth German that uh, had to find a German term for booty. But um, you want booty? It's going to be your life. You can live if you surrender now. If you break the siege and come out and surrender now, yes, they will enslave you, but you'll be alive. And you will live out your days as a Babylonian slave. Because the people that God has truly preserved are already in Babylon. Daniel was sent there in 605 B.C., plus Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
They were sent in 605. They were sent back during the third year of King Jehoiakim. And then Ezekiel and 10,000 others, they were sent in, in 597. They've been there for a while. They're there, not as slaves either, by the way. They have freedom. They're living in homes. They're, they're marrying. They're giving in marriage. They're raising families. They're prospering in business. Daniel is already in high governmental office. But the people who surrender now with the city under siege, they get enslaved. And the ones who don't surrender now, the ones that are captured when the city falls, not one of them is going to live. Every single one is going to be put to the sword. The only exception I'm aware of is Zedekiah himself personally has his eyes gouged out and he's taken off to Babylon to die in Babylon. Everybody else is put to death in the land. They don't, they don't go to Babylon. That was kind of gruesome in this uh, respect. Surrender and live as slaves because death is the only alternative. Surrender and live as slaves because death is your only alternative. That sounds pretty gruesome. Well, they didn't get here overnight. How did they get here? Why were these guys not taken with Daniel? Why were these guys not taken with Ezekiel? Why are these guys still here? What were the steps that brought them to this point right here? See, you know, a lot of times when I talk to, to, to folks and they find themselves, even Christians, they find themselves in no-win situations. And they say, oh, all I've got are I've got two bad choices in front of me. That's probably true. But before you got to this point, what were the choices in front of you? And before you got to that point, what were the choices in front of you? There's a long chain of things and poor decisions lead to fewer and lesser options. I remember that from my childhood. I remember my childhood pastor teaching me this. Good decisions lead to greater, more and greater options, right? Good decisions, a series of good decisions, a good decision, a good decision, a good decision. We stay adjusted to the justice of God and we, take, we make good decisions, good decisions. And guess what? Man, there are open doors, wide open doors for fruitful service and ministry. But bad decisions, bad decisions, bad decisions. And a long sequence of those and we find in God's discipline... It leads to fewer options and lesser options to the point now we, we reach this point. Surrender and live as slaves or death. There you go. And it is what it is. The, um, and, and it becomes unthinkable. Well, if those are my only options, well then I'm not going to choose. Well, those are your options. If you don't choose, you're dead. Okay? Um, the, uh, I think the the, the stark reality of this is going to get pointed when what happens, like I say, in our future. What happens when America reaches this point? You know, Patrick Henry says, give me liberty or give me death. They were at that point. And I think the founding fathers identified with that. I know they did. I got a John Thomas Jefferson quote for you here. Which is preferable? Dying as free men or living as slaves? And what happens when we reach this point? Or do we have the character to stand before the Lord in His will, knowing that we're in His will? We don't want to have it backwards. In Jerusalem, they had it backwards. They thought that Daniel was the cursed one, that Ezekiel was the cursed one, 
that everyone that was taken away already was was cursed. And they were safe and secure in Jerusalem. Because after all, this is Jerusalem. This is where God lives. We're the blessed ones. And Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah unanimously said, no, you've got it backwards. God has already preserved a remnant by carrying them into captivity. You guys are slated for destruction. And he is going to destroy his own house. He, he levels the city. It becomes an object of horror and hissing. Okay? Reminiscent of Thomas Jefferson's quote, and you get the whole thing online. This is on the necessity of taking up arms. He wrote it in 1775, a year before he wrote the Declaration of Independence. In fact, it made an impression on John Adams, so much so that it was he, he pointed out this, this writing and, and used this as the argumentation for why Jefferson needed to be on the Declaration Committee because of the way that he wrote this a year earlier. A declaration by the representatives of the United Colonies of North America now met in Congress at Philadelphia, setting forth the causes and necessity of their taking up arms. They dispatched George Washington as their commander-in-chief, and they took up arms to defend themselves against the Redcoats. And they published a paper describing why. And if you want to read it, it's exciting. Um, I, I clipped one paragraph out of 15. This is paragraph number 12 out of the 15 paragraphs. Our cause is just, our union is perfect, our internal resources are great, and if necessary, foreign assistance is undoubtedly attainable. Ends up being the French, but hey, we'll live with that. We gratefully acknowledge as signal instances of the divine favor towards us. I believe Thomas Jefferson was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. In the last 20 years, there have been a lot of efforts made to, point, to paint him as a deist, and they've taken some of his later writings and ignored some of his earlier writings to paint him as a deist. I think the, the totality, especially the early writings, point to his salvation. Signal instance of the divine favor toward us that his providence would not permit us to be called into this severe controversy until we were grown up to our present strength, had been previously exercised in warlike operation and possessed of the means of defending ourselves. In fact, the colony's participation in the Seven Years' War, he felt, and Washington felt, prepared their militias to engage in, in their defense for independence. With hearts fortified with these animating reflections, we most solemnly before God and the world declare that exerting the utmost energy of those powers which our beneficent creator hath graciously bestowed upon us, the arms we have been compelled by our enemies to assume, we will, in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employ for the preservation of our liberties, being with one mind resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves. And, and I wonder if the 21st century character of America could write a paper like that. I don't know. I don't believe so a scattering remnant here and there, but not culture at large. 
All right. If you want the full link to this, email me and I'll send you the link. Or you can Google it. Google teaches you everything. But Thomas Jefferson on the necessity of taking up arms. 15 paragraphs long. And that was, you know, paragraph 12 out of 15. They're all well worth reading. So you think about this and you think about where they are and the options that are before them. Then he speaks to the house of David. We're going to tie this together now. The house of David. Wasn't that what he's addressing with these four kings? Aren't they all in the house of David? Well, three of them are anyway. Zedekiah technically is, but not as far as the lineage of Christ is concerned. Still the house of David. And guess what? God has made promises to David that he's going to fulfill even though these losers (laughs) are uh, the biggest rebels they are. Zedekiah does not cancel out promises God made to David. The house of David still has a future even in spite of these guys. So in verses 11 through 14, and and some of this is quite puzzling. It would take weeks to to work our way through. But then say to the house of the king of Judah, the household of the king of Judah, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor, that my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. The problem is not military. It's not the armies that surround you. It's that your corrupt government has perverted justice. You have perverted justice. There is a legal system for the high and the mighty where they get away with whatever they want to get away with. And then there's a legal system for the little people that are subject to the laws that the high and mighty are not subject to. And in that perversion of justice, the God of justice says, you're in trouble, (laughs) okay? Behold, I am against you. My wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. And so the example is the example of David. Righteous kings will follow the pattern of David and righteous kings will foreshadow the future reign of Jesus Christ. Every good king was a type of Christ from Jehoshaphat to Josiah to... uh, all the good kings of, uh, of Judah. David, obviously, was the pinnacle. All the good kings. Hezekiah, oh my. Hezekiah is probably the best of all those good Davidic kings. I don't know, maybe Josiah. Okay? And they will follow that pattern of David. Scripture even says that. Followed with their whole heart as David their father had done. Or did not follow with their whole heart. Followed after the kings of the north. And they become a foreshadowing of the future reign of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus Christ is going to do? He's going to judge with justice every morning. Every morning he's going to administer justice. In the millennial kingdom, when the sun rises on Jerusalem, any unbeliever that's found within the boundaries of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ executes them. For a thousand year reign of Christ. That's why it's recommended if you're not saved, get out of Jerusalem before the sun goes down. Okay? If you're in town visiting, get out of town before the sun goes down. When the sun comes up, Jesus Christ will execute you. There is death in the millennium. Not like the new heavens and new earth in which there is no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The first things have passed away. The millennium is is a time of righteous wrath. These, These last items, I'm out of time. Valley dweller and rock of the plain enigmatic titles, 
Enigmatic is usually what the scholars say when they say it's a puzzle. Um, or we don't know. Okay, It's an enigma. It's a riddle. Um, they may be poetic references to Jerusalem. Most commentators agree, well, that's just a reference to Jerusalem. Even though they didn't dwell in a valley. There were three valleys surrounding Jerusalem. And, and we can name the valleys. I've shown them on the map. Uh, Rock of the Plain. They may be poetic references to Jerusalem of Jeremiah's day. They may be eschatological. They may even be personal renaming rebukes. We saw that last chapter. We saw that in chapter 20 when, uh, when Jeremiah renamed his, his uh, critic and gave him a new name. There may be new names here for these two guys as a personal renaming to Pasher and Zephaniah. I do think uh, in some respects there's, there's gleanings here eschatologically that would be um, interesting for us. I'm against you, O valley dweller, a rocky plain, declares the Lord. You men who say, who will come down against us or who will enter our, into our habitations? But I will punish you according to the results of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest that it may devour all its environs. All right, well, I'm out of time. We're going to continue next week because in chapter 22 it continues on. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. And much of these early verses in chapter 22 are redundant from chapter 21. All right, The rebuke against Zedekiah continues and he gets it more than once. He gets it repeatedly and he doesn't like it any time. <laughs> All right, Didn't like it the first time, doesn't like it the second time, doesn't like it the third time. Eventually he's going to get so mad he's going to start burning the scrolls that Jeremiah sends to him. Father, I thank you for your truth. And again, we're mindful of circumstances in our nation and what we have in front of us. And Father, uh, you are in charge. You install kings, you remove kings, you place over us the basest of men. And so, Father, we're in your hands. I pray that you would motivate your children to vote according to your principles, to have impact in our community, in our state, in our nation, that we might reflect biblical norms and standards that we might stand for righteousness and speak against the injustice that presently uh, seems to have sway. So Father, in the meantime, keep us humble before you and uh, give us discernment, Father, that we might walk uh, wise as serpents, yet harmless as doves. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.